I always do say, like, don't put your dreams on hold because you don't know what's like what tomorrow will bring. But it was amazing. So that's what I mean. Like, if you want to do something, they just follow your heart. I'm up against the world champ, and I figured, like, all I wanted to do since my accident was surf on my own. And I figured I, I get to do it at Waikiki in this most beautiful surf break. So I just go out there, try my best and have fun. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, lovely neighborhood. It is so nice to be back in your ears after a huge few weeks since we last recorded, although I'm just realizing now you'll have only heard that episode last week, even though we recorded it ages ago. (laughs) Podcast land is so weird. We've been overseas. We've come back. We've settled on our new home, which is so exciting and started the renovations, but have also shared a huge and challenging part of our lives from earlier this year for the first time. And your response has just been overwhelmingly beautiful. I won't go into it too much now so as not to take away from our incredible guest for this week and I'll dedicate next week's Yays of Our Lives episode to talking about it in a little bit more detail but we experienced a pregnancy loss earlier this year and shared what happened for the first time uh, last week with the incredible team at Stella Magazine. Again I'll go into it in much more depth in the next episode where we'll create space to kind of cover everything that happened but I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone listening who has shared their own story with us in response or sent a message of support. There have been hundreds and hundreds and we've been just so moved by the response and it's been so enormously cathartic. I was actually really nervous to share it, weirdly, even though I'm someone who shares quite a lot. But anyway, in the meantime, you can also head over to Stella's podcast if you missed the feature in the magazine, something to talk about. If you want to listen to the initial interview with the incredible editor, Sarah Lamarcand, who was so nurturing and so supportive and really helped get the story out when we were a bit nervous and not really sure how to word it for the first time. It just felt really weird to record this week without mentioning it at all, but uh, we will cover it more next week. So just for now, thank you all so much from the bottom of our hearts. For now, I'm so excited about this week's guest, having followed her story and had her on our ultimate wish list for many years now. It's one of those pinch myself moments. Some of you may already know her, but if not, Sam Bloom is a world champion surfer, adventure traveler, best-selling author, neurology nurse, and mother of three boys, whose story also became a global Hollywood hit, Penguin Bloom. That heartbreaking story begins in 2013 when Sam was paralyzed in a terrifying accident in Thailand when she fell through a rotting balcony. But it was the unlikely arrival of a beautiful magpie chick called Penguin that helped Sam's gruelling recovery back in Australia. The photos captured by her photographer husband, Cameron, which are painstakingly beautiful, were later made into a book written alongside legendary author Bradley Trevor Grieve, and this then became the basis of Penguin Bloom starring Naomi Watts. Having poured over Penguin Bloom many times, it was just surreal to be able to hear Sam chat so candidly about grief and redefining joy in real time rather than reading her words in the book. She is so refreshingly honest about the defining trauma in her life and the challenges that she still endures every day, but being able to find yay in between all those moments. And what I also loved, though, was the chance to ask Sam about all the other parts of her life that perhaps don't relate so much to the story that many know her for and maybe haven't been part of the book or the movie. I could go on forever, but I will let Sam tell you the rest herself. This is one of my favorite chats to date. I just really felt so much warmth towards her and I hope you guys do too. I'm so grateful for Sam's time and I hope you guys enjoy this chat. Sam, welcome to Seize the Yay. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is such a pleasure. I have 
followed you for such a long time. I think we said in the original email, I've had the very first book for a really long time and then have followed your journey since. And this is very surreal and so exciting. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I'm just me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's easy for you to say, which is why we start every episode, particularly with people like yourself, where lots of us feel very connected in with your journey and are constantly in awe of everything that you do. But I'm sure for you, you just feel like you're you. Yeah. So I start every episode by just asking people what the most sort of down-to-earth, normal, rando thing is about them that reminds people listening that you are just a human who has weird habits and does weird things. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, man. I don't know. I just guess I'm just, like I said, I'm just me, just a tomboy. I've always been a tomboy. Certainly not academic. I like just being kind of physical, you know, getting out there, doing exercise. Yeah, and just keep it real. I love that. Yeah, just like keeping it real, you know, don't sugarcoat anything. Yeah, don't make something bigger than it, you know, it needs to be. Oh, that's so refreshing. And I think that comes across in, you know, everything that you do, that you're just exactly who you are and, and you don't sugarcoat things. <laughs> and I love that so much. I know, yeah, no, absolutely not. <laughs> but I also love that you mentioned, you know, you weren't academic. And I think there are so many different kinds of creativity and intelligence and not all of them necessarily get, like when we're younger and we sort of have an idea of what we should become and what we're supposed to be, like there's so much pressure to do certain pathways or to do certain things. And so I kind of like to go, particularly with people like yourself, where a lot of us have been introduced to your story from sort of 2013 onwards. And there's not as much airtime about who you were before that and yeah. how you made decisions about what you wanted to do when you were a kid. And having said that you aren't very academic, you were a neurology nurse. So I beg to differ. But can you take us back to very, very young Sam and sort of introduce us to you know, who you were as a child, what your first job was, what you thought you'd be when you grew up. Sure. Well, that's funny because I had it in my head that I wanted to be a nurse when I was in first grade. No way. Yeah. I, and I, I remember our teacher, she asked everybody to draw a picture, you know, of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I drew a nurse and she had this massive needle, even though I hate needles. And, <laughs> I, and I had the pyramids. I drew the pyramids in the background because I wanted to go to Africa. Whoa. Yeah, and I don't know where it came from, but I was just like, I was so adamant. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a nurse and I'm going to go to Africa. Which is amazing because that's obviously what you did, which is wild. Yes. But yeah, it's kind of weird. It's so funny because, you know, often like this whole first section is called Your Way TA, which is, yeah, tracing back all the chapters of who you've been at different times in your life to remind everyone listening that most people with a, a cool pathway or an interesting life story often didn't know what they wanted to be or what was coming next. But for you, it's rare that we hear that someone was like, I wanted to be this when I was a kid and then I did it. So how did you kind of yeah. translate that to getting there? To Like was that with you the whole way through school that you wanted to do nursing in Africa? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep, the whole way through school. And I've always had this thing for Africa. And I, like I said, I don't know where it came from. And I remember, um, oh, how old? Maybe I was 16. Or 17. And I remember my grandma took me into the city because we live at, on the northern beaches. She took me into town and took me into Dimmicks, into the <laughs> big bookshop. She's like, pick a book. I'm like, okay, grandma. And I picked, do you remember Lonely Planet? Of course, yeah. Yeah, and I remember I, I specifically picked um, like West Africa, Lonely Planet, West Africa. And I'm like, yeah, I want that. That is wild. Yeah, it's funny. And so I just, I think I've always been pretty... I wouldn't say determined, but like if I have my mindset on something, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I love that, especially like a Northern Beaches girl, barefoot, tomboy, outdoors, surfing. It's like Africa is not the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I know. I know. It's funny. But yeah, no, it's just always been like, yeah, just the one place that I've been drawn to. Wow. It's really funny because the pyramids, uh, we had our honeymoon in Egypt a year ago oh, and we'd, cool. we'd both been obsessed with like hieroglyphics and Egyptology since we were kids as well. And it was like one year today since we landed. Oh, wow. That's so I cool. just had the thing pop up and I had this weird, maybe not as much like from childhood as you like buying books and stuff, but I always was fascinated with the pyramids and, and always wanted to go, but didn't think I'd work there. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I mean, at least you went. Yeah, it absolutely blew my mind. So, okay. So you thought you wanted to be, do nursing kind of all the way through school. And then when you did actually start that career, like what came next? How did you make your way to Africa? And I, I believe that that was where you met your husband, was traveling. Oh, you won't, we kind of. Okay. So obviously I finished school, went to uni. And you know, the funny thing is, I actually found it really hard to get a job. Really? When I finished school. Yeah, as a nurse. I was just like, 
Oh. And so my mom and dad had a cake shop in Newport. And so I would just work there to earn money to go traveling. And that's actually where I met Cam because we went to different schools. And Cam used to come in and buy, you know, meat pies or whatever. Yeah, and I thought he was pretty spunky (laughs) (laughs) and seemed really nice. So I remember one night I was out with my friend Bron. We were just at the local pub and I saw Cam and he was with his friend. And so I, I went up to him asking him out to a party. And that's kind of where it all started. You asked him out. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I said, do you want to come to a party like tomorrow night or tonight? I can't remember. Maybe it was that night or the next night. And then, you know, swap phone numbers as you did because Cam's a photographer. And so he's got the same passion as me, love traveling, loves many different people, you know, learning about cultures. And yeah, so when I finished uni, I didn't get a job. I couldn't get a job. So Cam and I went traveling. Oh, my. oh so he, was he in Africa with you? Not all of it. So Cam and I flew to um, Italy and then went through Greece and then Turkey. And then we actually went down through the Middle East. Wow, I love, love the Middle East. Yeah, so cool. And then over to Egypt. So that was Cam's first time to Africa, to the continent. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. It was cool. And then so um, – I don't know, we are away for quite a while. And then I flew up, Cam had to um, fly back to Australia for work. So I went to London and I got a job. In London? No, not in London. I was actually in Hampshire. I was looking after a lord. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was so lovely. He's a QC. His name is Lord Denning. Lord Denning? Mm-hmm. So I was his nurse. Stop it. Yeah, for only for about maybe three months. Okay, Sam. So I was a lawyer before I went oh, into right. media. So you know, I have read so many Lord Denning judgments. Oh, weird. That is wild. <laughs> That's so weird that you know. Oh, him. I'm getting That's starstruck <laughs> like through you. I'm like, oh my God, Lord Denning, <laughs> he's so fancy. He wrote every judgment ever. Oh, wow. He's such a nice is man. Is he? Yeah, he was beautiful. Wow. And so, yeah, so I lived with him. Stop. You lived yeah. with him? Oh, my God, that's so wild to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, he had the most beautiful house. It was like on quite a big property in a tiny little town called Whitchurch. Wow. And it was this beautiful old sandstone house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was amazing. So we'd have obviously breakfast and together and then lunch and and dinner, and he spent a lot of time in his library. I can imagine. I actually don't know what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I like leave him there, but yeah, he was just—he was a very, very kind man. And I remember having um, Christmas with his, with Lord Dunning, obviously, and and Lady Fox. And wow, yeah, yeah, it was cool. Oh my gosh. Sam, to any of like my fellow, you know, former colleagues or anyone I started with, there are quite a few who still listen to this show. They will be frothing right now. Like Lord Denning for Christmas? What? (laughs) Too funny. Yes. So um, I would talk to Lord Denning about traveling to Africa and, you know, he was really encouraging. Like obviously he loved traveling and, yeah. So that was, that was great. I feel like this is why I love going back through the chapters that often people are like, why do you even want to know about like my teenage years and my childhood and my first job? And I think it's because like often that's that kind of stuff doesn't like I didn't know that about you. And I go in deep into the internet to try and find like, (laughs) you know, little nuggets of like random experiences that you do and that you end up in somehow to meet people that you never thought you'd meet. And they all contribute to sort of who people become later in life. And I think it's so cool. (laughs) yeah oh that's so cool so yeah so I was with Lord Dunning for three months or however long it was and then that's how I saved up more money to go to West Africa okay so I finally finally got to West Africa wow which was amazing so I just did it like an overland trip oh so you weren't working you were traveling at this time I was just traveling yeah because I was only how old I was only 22 oh wow yeah so oh my god still pretty young yeah no it was was such a fantastic trip like, you know, going through Senegal and Mauritania, Mali, like all on the West, in the West Africa. I feel like there's something about we've not spent that much time there, but we've done more like East. So we spent a bit of time in Rwanda and Tanzania and Zanzibar oh, cool. and, and a bit of South Africa. But I feel like there's something about almost everyone I know who's been once has been back many times. Like as soon as you go to the continent, it's like, oh, I need to get back. Absolutely. It's the people. I just love the people. They're just amazing. So... After that, how long did you spend sort of in those travels and then what brought you home? Or did you kind of stay there for a while? Well, funny enough, well, it wasn't funny, but okay, so I I'd paid for the West African trip and the truck was actually going from West Africa to East Africa. 
And um, I was in Burkina Faso and I had my bag stolen. And, and back then, this is in 1994. <laughs> you probably weren't even born then. No, I was definitely born, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, obviously you have traveler's checks. Like it, it was just a little bit different then. And so I had my money stolen. So I couldn't keep going to East Africa because I'd only paid for the West African bit. So I was like, damn it. So I flew back to London. I got another job for a month. And then um, my friend and I went to Morocco just for a, for a holiday. And then we were there for maybe only three weeks and I flew back to London. And it's, it's a bit of a shitty story because um, I made a really good friend on their trip, a couple of really good friends from Australia. And um, so I was back in London. I was just staying in a hostel. And then I looked down and there was that paper TNT and it said, Osman killed by grenade attack. <gasps> yeah. And I picked it up and I was like, oh my God. And it was my friend, Anne. Oh. And I found out he'd gotten killed in Uganda. <gasps> Someone, it was when Rwanda was kind of going crazy. So obviously it was a pretty terrible time. So um, someone threw a hand grenade at the truck and, and it exploded and he got shrapnel through his heart. <gasps> so that's why I came home. I remember, oh, and the weirdest thing is, and even now, like after all these years, like, you know, the REM song, Everybody Hurts? Yeah. That was playing on like video hits on the TV. And you can't listen to it now. No, I, I always feel like crying if I hear it. I'm like, mm. So, yeah, so um, I read that he'd been killed and my other friend had been really badly injured. So, yeah, That's I remember awful. ringing mum in tears going, oh, I'm coming home, I'm coming home. Yeah. Oh, my god. So that's why I went home. Like this is, you. we're not even to 2013 yet and you've already had like a whole lifetime worth of experiences. <laughs> <laughs> not really, no. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I feel like those are those, you know, defining kind of life moments that just change your absolutely your whole perspective on sort of mortality yeah. and making the most of every minute and the things that you just walk along in your life thinking, la, 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 like I've got all the time, yeah. the you know, I, I think they really change you know, your mind. Yeah, it just, and, and the worst thing was, I mean, obviously the worst thing, he died, but um, all Anne wanted to do, he wanted to see them, the gorillas. <gasps> he didn't see them. I just wish he'd seen the gorillas. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, yeah, no, I was devastated when, like when I heard that. So, yeah, it still makes me sad. Even though we didn't know each other for that long, we just had this really good connection and, yeah, it's bizarre how something like that can, like, yeah, like impact your, yeah, like you said, your whole life. It's also interesting. I feel like, you know, there's friends that you have because you share an entire history and school life and you know, you've known each other through many chapters and then there's friends often that you meet through travel where you kind of escalate through the first two decades of friendship just because you've shared something really intense. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah, bizarre. Yeah, so I remember when I came home and when my other friend, like she she got incredibly badly injured and then she was in hospital for quite a long time. When she got out, we drove down to Wagga, which was where Aunt was from, and met his mum and dad and which was really lovely. And I remember Aunt really loved chocolate. So I went to we went to his grave and I remember sticking a chocolate bar in his grave. Oh, <laughs> oh that's a lovely thing <laughs> to do. Yeah. It's bizarre. And his mum, she's so lovely. She's still in touch with me. And she always makes me want to cry because she'll, she'll message me and go, Aunt will be so proud of you. And I'm just like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, what do I say? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was, yeah that, was, that was my first trip, well, I guess, second trip to Africa. And I, th I feel like it's interesting when you come home from somewhere that's just so different to Australia. And, ha I mean, seeing other cultures and experiencing them is what, lights my life like I just I love travel for that reason but I also feel like it's kind of disorientating when you get home because you've had all this time living in a different way and and having your brain expanded and then you kind of come home and you're like got to get used to the day-to-day -day again and it's like this I don't know I get this tension between like wanting to adventure and live minute to minute and then you come home and it's oh, like yeah. oh my god shoulds and expectations and like settle down and have a life path <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> What was next? What did I do? Um, I came home. I don't think I, I still work, ended up working at mum and dad's cake oh, shop. Oh, did you go back to the cake yeah. shop? <laughs> so thank God for the cake shop. <laughs> what did I do? Oh, then I went to India and Borneo with my sister. And then in between that, we'd do like little trips. But that was that was quite a big, biggish trip away. And then when I finally came back, I actually got a nursing job. So I was like, <laughs> yay, about time. I'm settling down now. I'm doing the thing. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's when I got a proper job. Well, I, it was funny. I was on a casual, um, the casual pool at Ride Rehab, 
which is actually where I ended up, which was kind of a bit odd. No way. The same place. Yeah. Just, I was just on the casual pull-up there and then I got a proper job at um, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital on the neurosurgical ward, which was fantastic. I love that. And I had a fantastic boss and he knew he, I love travelling. And so, like, being a nurse, you kind of, it's pretty cool. You get, like, a lot of holidays. Really? Yeah. Like, I used to take six weeks off at Christmas and then two weeks off during the year. Wow. So usually the six weeks, um, Cam and I would go away, like, yeah, one time we went to back to Egypt and then to Ethiopia, which was awesome. Amazing. Ethiopia is amazing. Yeah, highly recommend oh, it. I love your sense of adventure. And I also <laughs> I love the idea that I think something we talk about a lot in the show is people's idea of success and that being kind of the way you measure your life and like how far have I come along and am I hitting mm-hmm. goals and am I keeping up with everyone around me but I love that it, it sounds like through your whole life you've had obviously had goals and a vocation and a profession but like travel and seeing the world and other life experiences that aren't just like success measurements have been equally valued for you Oh, totally. Yeah, I've never been one like, you know, oh, I'm going to be a nurse and then I'm going to be like a clinical nurse specialist and like move up the ranks. I've never been like that. That's fascinating. I don't know. I just like doing what I like to do (laughs) and that was traveling. (laughs) And when you say it like that, it sounds so straightforward, like do the things that make you happy and like just don't do the things that don't make you happy. Absolutely. That's what I say to everybody. Like if you want to do something, then do it. Don't want to have regrets. Totally. And yet there's, for some reason, for so many of us, it's actually a really convoluted decision-making process of like there's a lot of barriers between I want to do it and I should do it. And there shouldn't be, but it's funny how like Mm -hmm. we let our brain get so clouded by all the reasons why we shouldn't be doing those things. I love that you're just like, nah, like I want to do what I want to do. Absolutely. I mean, I've always been like that. Even I remember one time I saw this magazine, Simply Living. Okay. Do you remember that? It was a yeah, bit kind of hippie, whatever. <laughs> like, and on the front cover, they had a, a portrait of a man from Bhutan. And then in the, in the obviously, there was an article about like Bhutan. And I'm like, yeah, I so want to go there. So I did. <laughs> you just went, next day, bought a ticket. <laughs> yeah, no, I had to do a trek. It was a trek. You had to go through, um, what was it, world expeditions. and But it was amazing. So that's what I mean. Like, if you want to do something, they just follow, follow. Follow your heart. Yeah, I love that so much. And it's actually Bhutan, I think, that's the country that has the highest gross domestic happiness. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful country and beautiful people. Oh, it's so that's still definitely right there, up there on my bucket list. But coming back to that whole like measuring things more by happiness and fulfillment and joy rather than like success and goals, which is really if I want anyone listening to take anything away from this show, it's to allow yourself space to measure your life by how happy you are not just by all those other things. I think one of the reasons why your story is so powerful to people is that, I mean, up until this point, if, if anyone listening hasn't heard Sam's story yet, it already sounds like there's been a whole entire lifetime of revelations. But I mean, like really from 2013 is another gigantic life-changing event that makes it even more impressive that you have such a, a healthy, fresh approach to, to happiness from the depths of darkness to be able to find joy again. So can you tell us the story for anyone who hasn't heard it? Of course. So like <laughs> like I said, I love travelling. And then um, so Cam and I had three boys or have three boys and we wanted to um, instill our love of travel in them. And, you know, actually the most frustrating thing is Cam and I wanted to take them to Ethiopia and Egypt. And then at the time, I know at the time, Egypt, it was just a bit too dangerous. So we're like, no, we don't want to risk it. And so that's why we chose Thailand. We thought, you know, it's close, beautiful people, great food. And so, yeah, so we flew to Thailand, flew to Phuket, and then we started heading up north. And we were kind of halfway between Phuket and Bangkok. And we'd been in Thailand for only about four days. And we were staying at this really nice hotel. Like it was right on the beach. It was pretty remote. And then one of the kids spotted like this, um, like an observation deck. And so we went up the stairs and then I leant on the railing and it had dry rot, but I didn't realize. And so I fell back six meters and just straight down. And so, yeah, so I fra- broke my back and hit my head, like sustained like numerous injuries, but obviously breaking my back was the worst. <gasps> oh, my so, gosh, yeah, That was my holiday. That was the worst holiday of my life. <laughs> 
I mean, justifiably, <laughs> that's not what you want on day four to, I think yeah. you fractured your skull, ruptured both lungs and yeah, then shattered your yeah. spinal cord, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm paralyzed from my chest down, like no movement, no, no feeling, nothing. Oh my gosh. I know. And it's weird, you know, because like, like I said, I used to be really active, like before, I guess before the accident, you know, I'd always be surfing and playing soccer and mountain biking. That was who I was. And then losing my mobility has always just been like, like the scariest thing for me. And to have that happen, it was just like, what? Like, yeah. So I, I didn't handle it very well at all. I mean, fair enough. It's like yeah. something that you you can't ever kind of plan for. I mean, no one sort of gives you a rule book on like, how do I rebuild who I am, especially as someone who is especially active and who does activities like surfing, which you don't immediately think, oh, surfing's really easy as a paraplegic. Although speaking of your determination, you have since gotten back <laughs> in the water, but we'll make our way back to that. <laughs> so when it first happened, I mean, because you, you know, have a background in nursing and neurology, did you know straight away? Like, did you get evacuated? Like, how, how did you get home? Well, no, I didn't know straight away. Well, I knocked, I knocked myself out and I had bleeds on my brain and stuff. So I was pretty out of it. And I actually had no idea. Really? I had no idea I couldn't move. But apparently in the ambulance, I kind of came to and I said to Cam, I can't move, I can't move. But I don't remember any of this. So my first memory is probably, it must have been two days after I fell and my mum and sister turned up and I'm like, what are you guys doing here? <gasps> like, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't even know I was in the hospital. And then, oh, I remember saying to mum, because I was like strapped onto this spinal board and I had this strap going over my chest and I'm, I remember saying to mum, oh, this is really hurting my boobs. <laughs> it was just squishing me. And I, I remember saying, I want to get up, I want to get up. And I, I don't remember what she said to me. So, yeah, and then the next memory is being in theatre. But I didn't know I was in theatre. And I remember them putting a central line in my neck and, and I hate needles and actually really hurt. And I remember gripping onto this sheet just like thinking, what? And then I saw them pull my T-shirt up and cut that off and then I just saw the mask come down. But, again, I had no idea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's just weird. I think the nurses were like – I do remember always putting my arm out and I just inject some sort of painkiller. So I was pretty out of it. And yeah, so no, I didn't know. And the Thai doctors never said that I was paralyzed. Really? No. From what I remember, they would say that I have spinal shock. And they'd be like, oh, you know, in six weeks or so, you know, it should kind of get better. So in my head, I'm like, okay. I can do like six weeks in hospital, then I'll go home and be me. Yeah, it'll all go back to normal. Yeah, I, I know it sounds weird, but I just had no idea. I must have thought, though, something bad had happened because um, where the accident happened, we were all put in an ambulance. We'd driven three hours up to this other hospital. It was like a private hospital. It was in a place called Wahian. So I was there for about a week and a half, and then they moved me up to Bangkok. And I remember when I was in Bangkok saying to Cam, I wish I'd died. <gasps> Sam. Oh, but I meant it though. So obviously I realised something was not right. Yeah. Yeah, so well, it, I didn't actually find out I was like paralysed until I got back to Sydney. Really? Yeah, I know. It sounds so ridiculous. So I remember I got flown back to Sydney um, with a nurse and a doctor. Like she was a Thai nurse and an Aussie doctor. And, yeah, met at the um, airport by ambulance officers and taken straight to Royal Shore. And, yeah, it was the second day there and I went and had an MRI and that's when the doctor came up. I remember asking him. My mum was there next to me. I remember saying, you know, will I ever walk again? He just went, no. I just, I just pulled the shoot over my head and I burst into tears. That's how I found out. Oh, my gosh. It's just I feel like, you know, how you were saying before, if you'd been asked what your biggest fear in life was, most of us have, you know, some big, huge fear that seems so remote. Like, yeah, it's huge fear, but like it would never actually happen. You've actually gone through the process of spending your whole life fearing <laughs> something and then one day someone literally, yeah, just comes up to you and goes, by the way, you know, that biggest like impossible 1% chance it would happen to you fear? Yeah, here it is. I know. I couldn't believe it. I was just devastated. I remember... Yeah, I was crying. Always just crying. I was, I was so, I think I was so overwhelmed. I was just like, oh, like as far as I was concerned, it was like my life's over. Yeah. You know, like, like what the hell am I supposed to do now? Yeah. 
you know, been stuck in, well, stuck in bed for like three months, but, you know, that was, wasn't too bad. But, yeah, no, I was devastated. I remember just being so sad and angry all the time. And also the whole like I often, you know, one of my kind of guiding life philosophies is everything happens for a reason, which helps orientate, you find the silver lining, blah, blah, blah. But there are some scenarios in life where you're like, there is no <laughs> fucking, that do- oh, no. <laughs> it does not make sense in every situation. No, no, definitely not. And it's interesting that it's, I think you are such an amazing example of the fact that, you know, we talk a lot about you can redefine the pathway that you have and you can find happiness in things you never thought you could. And, you know, it's easy to talk about that in the abstract, but like you actually lost everything that you enjoyed about who you were and what your life could be. Yeah. So tell us about building that back up again, because not that it's, I don't, I don't mean to compare scenarios, but I feel like people who might be, you know, born with paraplegia, they don't know themselves in a different way. Whereas you have a clear contrast of like, this was my life before and this is what I have to get used to now. That's it. It's the before and after. I always just say that's my old life. Yeah. Yeah, it is weird. Okay, so I was in hospital for about seven months. That's a hospital and rehab. And, yeah, I remember, I do remember I'd complain. There was an amazing guy there. He was a sports recreational officer. He was awesome. He knew how much I loved sport and all that. He would try so hard. He'd take me to wheelchair basketball. He'd take me to murder ball, you know, like that, where they knock into yeah. each other and two, right? throwing a ball on my own and everything. And I'd be like, no, no. And I, I remember saying to him, maybe I could kayak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I thought, I'm not in the wheelchair, you know, back on the water. And so, um, yeah, it was two weeks after I got home from rehab, that's when I first started kayaking and it just felt good. Like I would just paddle only one day a week, Saturday mornings, and that was the, the, like the highlight of my week, being just kind of having that freedom again. I mean, obviously it wasn't easy, like having no core. I'd be like sitting there and I'd be like wobbling <laughs> and just trying not to fall out. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was just fun and it was also it was the one day, or it was the one thing actually that took my pain away. Mm. This is the most annoying thing about spinal cord injury. It's like I have no feeling, but I'm in constant pain. Really? Yeah, it's so frustrating. It's like neuro, it's called neuropathic pain. So it's like your nerves, I guess, going crazy. So it's like you're continuously on fire. So you sort of have no sensations other than the ability to feel pain in that area. Yeah, but it's not normal pain. It's just like literally like you're sitting in coals or sitting on like stinging nettles or something. All the time? All the time. It's like, damn, give me a break. So that's why the kayaking was really great because I think it was like a distraction, Mm. you know. So I I had to obviously just focus on not falling in the water and it was just, yeah. It was this, yeah, it was a good distraction. And then I do remember thinking, wow, um, you know, the pain's not as bad. I think it's also really interesting how you didn't do it all overnight. Like you kind of didn't go from where you were to like where you are now, where you can speak about it and you can have happiness in your day. It was really like, okay, first I'll just do one day a week. And then, and I think why the story of Penguin and the Magpie is so beautiful is it because it reminds everybody, like it's just those really small things that give you a glimmer of a new emotion, like a tiny, tiny glimmer of hope. You don't need to have it all sorted out in one day. It can be one small distraction that gets you a little bit closer every day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. So I started the kayaking and then, yeah, when I came home, I was like not in a good headspace. I think when I came home, it was kind of like, oh my God, this is my reality. This is my new life. And I hated it. Like, you know, because we can look well, like we can see the beach and I can see my favorite surf spot. And so I would just sit here and I'd look at it and it would make me so angry, like so sad, you know, thinking, and I'd always go back. Oh, you know, if this was like, you know, this time last year, I would have been out there. I would have been surfing and, you know, having the best day. And so, yeah, I felt like I was on house arrest and I hated being here. I felt like a really bad mom because yeah, the kids were only little. Yeah, how old were they at the time? When it happened, they were like seven, nine, and ten. <gasps> oh, yeah, they're only like little, little. <laughs> and you know, I did everything for them. And then so when I came home, I felt so bad because I couldn't, I couldn't take them to school. I couldn't run, go down the beach with them, and actually, and really silly things like I couldn't clean the house. You know, just really dumb mum things. <laughs> but I missed that so much. Yeah. and going shopping and cooking and. Yes, I I really struggled and 
Yeah, it's just sad. It was about three months after and Noah and I went to my mum's house. She lives at the next beach and, yeah, and Noah found a little magpie and, and we thought we should die if we left her there. So we picked her up and bring her home and, yeah, she was so cute. <laughs> she was so adorable. And then so we called her Penguin because she looked like a baby penguin. <laughs> she had that, you know, the fluffy chest. <laughs> you know, that's why I was like, oh, she looks like a penguin. And so, yeah, it was just great. It was great for me because I actually had something to focus on. And she took, like, you know, instead of just kind of feeling, not sorry for myself, but, like, just wallowing, I guess, in, like, self-pity maybe. Which you're absolutely allowed to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just kind of put all my energy, and so did the kids, into Penguin because she, she, yeah, she was so tiny and she needed feeding every couple of hours. And oh. it was just lovely. It was just and I talked to her all the time. I would winch to her. <laughs> I'd tell her what was going on in my head. She's your emotional support bird. <laughs> she was. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, because obviously because Cameron's a photographer, he was documenting this. Did he know that he wanted to use the photos for something? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. So, yeah, like Cam continuously takes photos, which is fine. <laughs> I remember saying to him, though, um, I remember saying, if you're going to take a photo of me and Penguin, you can only shoot from my waist up. I didn't want the wheelchair in really? it. Yeah, had a few issues. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. You, you've come a long way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so as a joke, the kids said to Cam, why don't you start an Instagram account? And so we did it was, and it was just for a bit of fun. So we called it Penguin Magpie. And then, you know, Cam would post a few photos and then I think an ABC journalist from Brisbane, I think, saw it. And then it kind of went a bit crazy. So it was so f- I remember Cam and I were laughing. I was like, this is so bizarre. Like he was getting people from overseas wanting to write a little story on, on Penguin. <laughs> like from India, Israel, all this. We were like, what? Wow. So, yeah, it was bizarre. And then a few people, um, publishers, wanted to do a story, a book, and we were like, that's just weird. Like we were like, who would want to buy a book with um, our family photos in it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is such a weird concept when you think about it. Yeah. And then HarperCollins, ABC, email Cam, and then Cam messaged Bradley Trevor Grief, who actually wrote our books. I love He's him. He's an Aussie author. You know, Cam was kind of like, what do you think, you know, about telling our story? And then I think it was like 24 hours later, Bradley wrote back and he said, I'll tell your story. <gasps> so like, okay. So he was making – penguin almost like a, a like a vessel of, I guess you could say like I, to tell my story like he was telling my story through penguin mm. which sounds odd but <laughs> yeah but it, <laughs> but it was really cool I mean I'd never met Bradley it's kind of perfect timing for me because I was still like in a pretty I was not happy and I hated always whinging to camp because he had not, he had to obviously look after me and the boys. And, and so it was really nice talking to Bradley with Skype like almost every day for hours. And I would just, yeah, just tell Bradley everything, like how I was feeling, good days, bad days, you know, funny things, sad things. So it's kind of it's quite cathartic, I think, just talking and sharing things with him. Mm. I think I discovered him through the Blue Day book, which I think is yeah, yeah. maybe not his first one. Yeah, but I think it was the one that kind of like exploded and sold oh, like. Oh, man, I remember that too. That was massive. Yeah. It was like the one that really started me thinking about redefining like a shit day and it's, you know, one bad yeah. day isn't a bad life. And then there's all, and then I, you know, after I found that book, I kind of bought all these books. And I think that <laughs> actually might have been how I came across Penguin Bloom in the first place. But I mean, again, it's one of those things where like you would never have guessed that that is what would come of your story. But no, one million years. Yeah, like what? I know. Yeah, it was this, it was this weird, but it was, it was great. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. 
Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is a part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. It's shocking enough and I found it so surprising to know that half of us will feel lonely this week, but it may surprise you more to learn that young adults are some of the loneliest people in Australia. If we learn to understand and manage feelings of loneliness, it can be a normal part of the human spectrum of emotions. Just as we all get hungry or thirsty, we all get lonely. It's a normal part of being human. But if it becomes chronic, it can have the same impact on us as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Over this six-part reality podcast series, four young people meet with mentors and experts who will help them build strategies to reconnect. Through their stories, we understand the reality of loneliness in Australia, experienced by a generation that theoretically has never been more connected. Follow four vastly different young adults as We Are Lonely unpacks the complexity of emotions that comes with this formative period in our lives. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. And then it went on to become a, like, not just an international bestseller, but a Hollywood movie. I know, right? I know. What? Yeah. So one of the producers from the film, Emma Cooper, Cam knew Emma from from years ago, you know, obviously being a photographer. And, and then so Emma is best mates with Naomi Watts. So Emma gave a book to Naomi and it just really resonated with yeah. her because Naomi also has a couple of kids and, you know, I guess being a mum herself, she was like, wow, I want to make this into a film. I want to produce it and, and act in it. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> I love how most people are like they want, you know, their wildest dreams would be to get onto someone famous to like play them in a movie. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's asking if she can be you. Seriously, bizarre. That's wild. Yeah. yeah, no, it was really cool. I mean, I'm so lucky. Like she is the most down-to-earth, loveliest person ever. You know, like I, I was, I must admit, I was pretty nervous when I first met her. <laughs> I took her for lunch and I was going, Cam, oh my God, oh my God, like, you know, she's like this movie star. And I, I was thinking, oh, I hope she's not like a princess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the whole, like, just over the top. But honestly, as soon as we met, we just, yeah, just hit it off. She's so lovely. Oh my God. So I'm so lucky. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I think you think that it's luck, but also I think good things come to good people. <laughs> and, and like, you know, I think people find each other as well when they have some yeah, maybe. some product or some project that's going to come out that they're meant to be together for, like you and Bradley. And like, yes. you know, I feel like it all kind of comes together. And it's it's amazing that you have gone from a place of literally hating sort of your day-to-day, which yeah. is so understandable and such a natural like reaction to everything you love being taken away from you to now being able to not only like change so many other people's perception of happiness and fulfillment with the the book and the film but also like getting back in the water yourself you've gone on and like as you said you started canoeing I love how humble you are like I just kind of got in the water I'm like you then kind of won like some national titles but then also became a world surfing champion gal (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) I know, it's very strange because I used to surf. You know, I've grown up surfing and so I've always felt comfortable in the ocean. Yeah, but, I mean, after my accident, that I was like, you know, there's no way. Like I was like surfing is just like a write-off. Mm. And so it actually took five years. And you know how it came about? It was like this random act of kindness. It was a letter, wasn't it? It was a letter, yep, from Nola Wilson. And her son is Julian Wilson, who was a professional surfer. And, I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know them. And then Nola just wrote me this most beautiful letter encouraging me to get back out on the ocean, get back out in the water. And I was like, okay. So I kind of owe everything to Nola. Wow. I know. She's such a legend. Like she's just the coolest lady ever. (laughs) I mean, I think you're the coolest lady ever. But Oh, no, Nola is just amazing. She's so beautiful. Like even like she'd come down and like watch me compete at some like competitions you know in New South Wales and you know just she's always just so like she's again she's like oh I'm so proud of you and she's just yeah she's a beautiful lady so I know just that that one letter it's completely changed everything and it's so interesting because I think so much of your story is like the perfect example of all the themes we talk about on this show, but just on steroids like the idea of like we all you know we talk about self-doubt very often and 
confidence and trying out new things outside the comfort zone. But then also that if you have the right tribe around you, it just takes one conversation to kind of push you over the edge to either believe that you can or that you can't, like depending on who you surround yourself with. But that is an example literally on steroids. It's like (laughs) I didn't know if I could get back in the water. That would be enormously scary without the same physical strength. Oh, it was. It was scary and it was frustrating and some days I'd hate it and and, you know, and I'd get angry at Cam going because he was always in the water, obviously, with me. And, you know, and I'm like, you don't get this, Cam. Like, it's not the same and blah, 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 blah. you know, and have a whinge. But then other days, like, we would just have, like, such a great time and catch beautiful waves. And so, yeah, it, it definitely had its ups and downs. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, I would do absolutely anything to be able to grab my board and run down the beach and be on my own. I find because I used to be quite a loner. <laughs> No, I did. I used to go mountain biking on my own. I'd go running. Like I liked being on my own and I'd go surfing on my own. I mean, obviously I would do stuff with friends. Yeah. <laughs> you had some friends. I had a couple of friends, but you know what I mean? I just liked my own company and I missed that after my accident. I missed that so much. Just not being able to escape. Yeah. Can you explain adaptive surfing to people who don't actually know? We've actually had, do you know Barney Miller? Have you met him? Barney, I, I went in my first competition against Barney. Really? Yeah. So kind of, I guess Barney also inspired me to um, compete. I love Barney. He and Kata, um, we've known them for a while. They were on the show like in its very first year. Oh, and cool. I cry every time I watch their documentary. It's just so amazing. Aren't they? They're the best couple the ever. Best. The best. The best. But yeah. for those who haven't listened to that one, how does adaptive surfing work and how did you kind of build up your strength again? Okay. So, I mean, I'm pretty lucky. I've always been pretty strong in my arms. And so, so for me now, surfing means essentially lying on my board. Obviously, I can't stand up. And so I ride a normal shortboard. And so, but what it is, it does look a little bit weird. I get some weird looks sometimes. <laughs> I've got two fins on the top of my board. So that they keep my legs in place. Oh, yeah. If you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, Barney had the same. So I copied that idea off Barney because otherwise, like if a wave came, my legs would, a leg would just get pushed off and then I'd fall yeah. off. So I've got two fins on the top and then obviously like the three, you know, underneath like a normal yep. board. And I've got a handle at the front. Does that make sense? So I grab a handle and then and then hold the side of the board. It must look very strange. <laughs> it's almost like boogie. It's like, okay, it's like boogie boarding but on a surfboard. Yeah, okay. So someone gets you on the wave. So Mick and um, Barney are always partners in the competition. So Cam is your. Yeah, but that's changed now. Oh. Yeah. Okay. For five years, I did have Cam pushing me onto the waves and helping me get back out because I find paddling really hard because, well, I have no core. And um, so I find it really hard to like arch up and to paddle. I almost paddle with my head on the board. Yeah. To get more. It's just very strange. But yeah. And so last year I went to Hawaii and there's different classifications, obviously. You know, some people like Barney, for example, doesn't have great strength in his arms. Whereas, I mean, and then, but I do. And, you know, some people are missing limbs. It's visually impaired. There's a lot of different categories. And so I went to Hawaii to compete. And um, two days before the competition, they're like, oh, we want to reclassify you because you're looking really strong. Seriously? (laughs) And so I went in and they're like, you're not, you're not getting any help now. (gasps) I was kind of freaking out going, oh, how embarrassing if I can't catch a wave. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like. Okay, I was. I remember I was so like, oh my god, oh my god, like, you know. And and I remember Cam and I went out just for a practice surf, and I'm going to Cam, don't touch me, don't touch me. <laughs> like, I'm like, do not touch me. I have to do this on my own. And so I caught a couple of waves and say, okay, this is pretty tricky. And then, oh man, even the night before the competition, and I just figured, I just kind of changed my mindset. I figured I have nothing to lose. I was actually up against the world champion <gasps> in my new division. I'm like, oh, God. And it was so funny. I remember um, I went up to this mom. She was an American mom. Her daughter competes in another division. And I said to the mom, I'm like, Sarah's pretty good, isn't she? Sarah, who was I was competing against. And she goes, oh, yeah, she's going to mop the floor with you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, thank you for the boost of confidence. Oh, my God. I know. So I see, okay, cool. I've got nothing to lose. I'm up against the world champ and I figured like all I wanted to do since my accident was surf on my own 
And I figured I, I get to do it at Waikiki in this most beautiful surf break. So I just go out there, try my best and have fun. And so I did and I was super lucky and I got a couple of good waves and I now beat her. I beat Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. I was so like, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. You won gold two years in a row. We, this wasn't – it's not world. Oh, still. I know. This is – it's called um, the Adaptive World Tour. So what there is is there's um, three um, different locations for um, an adaptive surfing. It's a competition. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Hawaii was the first the first stop. Oh, my god! So, yeah, I was stoked. And so from now on, I mean, yeah, I get no assistance in the water. That is crazy. Yeah, it's pretty hard. And last year I went to Worlds and it was in it's in Northern California and it's, it's, it's in December. It was so cold and so awful. <laughs> and I remember I did well in my heats and it's funny because I was against Sarah and oh. she's American. And, um, and she goes to me, you do really well in good surf and really bad in shitty surf. I'm like, yeah, I know. Interesting. And, yeah. And so in the final, it was so windy and so horrible and I so did not want to go out. <laughs> and I just bombed, man. I just, I think I kind of caught one wave, but I just literally went over the falls. I was like, this is just shit. <laughs> So, and all I wanted to do, I, all I wanted was the, the hooter to go off so we could come in. It was such a long 20 minutes. <laughs> I was like, oh. so I came fourth. It's still amazing. Oh, I thought I'd be more gutted, but I was just kind of like, uh, in a weird way, like, and the, the other girls I was up against, I was up against two Americans and a South African. They were all really, like, great girls. So we kind of just had fun. Mm. So it was kind of cool. I was like, yeah, I didn't mind coming yeah. first. I thought I'd be gutted, but I was okay with it. <laughs> and, yeah, and then this year we just were in Hawaii about a month ago for the, the same comp as um, last year in Hawaii. And, yeah, I scraped it again. So only just, only just though. But did you love it? Yeah, I get nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I get nervous before competing and I can't eat and I know I have to and, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I get the full nerves and then it's like, don't know. I felt good in my final this year in Hawaii. Like my paddle fitness was quite good and I felt strong. What do you do when you get, like we talk a lot about how self-doubt is actually not a bad thing, like nerves are kind of a sign that I feel like if I turned up to say a speaking gig and I wasn't nervous, I'd be like, you're not invested enough. Like you're, you're getting a bit complacent, but what do you do with that? Like, how do you talk yourself down from like, so you don't throw up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know. I try not to, well, I, I, I can't bear it when people are like, nah, 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 nah. I kind of like, just, just kind of let me alone. Let me just kind of just focus. I do this, um, um, take some deep breaths and just, just, yeah, I don't know, just kind of hope for the best. Just like get in the zone. I know. Yeah, I remember my first ever um, World Championships and, and we had the three kids over there. This was in, in San Diego and they were so excited, which was so cute. But they are like, hey, my ear, oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> like, just please leave me alone. I was, I, you know, I'd never competed, like, before like that and I was just like, ah. <laughs> But, yeah, no, I just, yeah, just try and focus and. Do some deep breathing and drown it all out. <laughs> yeah, I still get crazy nervous. I love that though. I think that's so like it's a nice sign that you still really care about the outcome and yeah, yeah. But you want to do well, like when everybody wants to win. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in between your competing, you do a lot of public speaking. You've had Bradley did a second book on your story, yeah. Sam Bloom, Heartache and Birdsong. And now, I mean, I can imagine, particularly after the movie, that there are so many people who love your story. I imagine you get inundated with people sharing the ways it's, you know, impacted them and and I'm sure you get recognized as well. Like how like your life has changed so much. How how is it? Like what where are you at now? No, it's cool. I mean, that's the one thing about like the only thing that I, like I have like found positive in this whole crazy journey is sharing my story and just being able to help other people. Like, I can't bear the word, like, inspirational because I'm not that. But, like, you know, I love the fact that I have kind of encouraged other people, like, especially to get into the surfing. You know, it's so funny. There's three new Aussies who are hopefully going to be on the, on the team, on the Australian team representing Australia this year for the, for the adaptive surfing. And, yeah, no, it's really cool. Like, there was this one guy 
Well, actually, like last year I did a talk and then a dad came up to me and, you know, the dad was in tears and he's going, oh, my son's just had a paragliding accident. He's in Ron Shore, you know, he's paralysed. And, you know, I was just like thinking, oh, my God, what, like, you know, what do I say? And so I said to him, I said, look, just get, get Chris, that's his son, to reach out to me when he's ready. And, and, and he did. And I was so stoked. And, and then he came up, up to my house. He was in the hospital and his girlfriend drove him up here. And I don't know, we just hit it off. He's just, he was incredibly active. Like he'd go hiking, he'd do search and rescue. Like he was a goer. And he used to surf. And then um, it was funny. I went up to see him when I was in rehab. And I was telling him about the Hawaiian competition. And he's like, well, can anyone go? I'm like, yeah. And then over a cup of tea, he's like signing up <gasps> going, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I was like, hell yeah. So it was just awesome. So, I mean, mate, Chris hasn't even been injured for a year. It's going to be a year on Sunday. And then, yeah, so he came to Hawaii. That was his first overseas trip. This one just now? Yeah, a month ago. Yeah, and, and he competed. And, you know, he was also up against, like, obviously the world champion. And he did so well. He came fourth out of like 13 or 14 guys. I was like, dude, come on. And he's like, no, that's not good enough. I'm like, Chris, that's amazing. But it's just really nice. I remember him messaging me when he was still in rehab. Like, you know, he's, he wasn't in a good space. He was like me. He kind of hated it. Like, you know, he was angry. And he said, this is the first time I've been excited since my accident. And then the other day, just, yeah, we kind of train together a lot now. And then he said, yeah, the other day, like being in Hawaii with his girlfriend, Jazz, who's also just a legend, he said that was the first time we've been happy. Like, you know, just that it's okay. Yeah, that's so like, it lovely. Sucks. Like everything sucks, but you can still have fun. So that to me makes everything like, yeah, it just makes you feel good. Like if you can just help someone because I know exactly how he feels just being in that, in that just horrible dark space. And I think I know you don't like the word inspiring, but I think sometimes people in a dark place, any kind of dark place, they need something just to remind them that it is possible. Like things can suck in a way that you think is never going to end or that could never change, but people find a new purpose. They can find yes. new joy. And it, it takes a long time. Like I also think people think you probably healed really quickly, but I'm sure it took you a really long time. Are you kidding it took ages. I mean, I, but I still don't accept it. I'll never be okay with this. Like, man, I hate it. Ever so, even some days I still wake up now and go, oh, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just would do anything to be me. Yeah. Just to get up and go for a bushwalk or whatever. Yeah, no, I'll never be okay. But like you said, like if you find a purpose or something that you love doing, it change, it does change everything. You know, not like, I mean, oh, man, the amount of – I remember saying to Cam – Oh, like quite a long time ago, I remember saying to him, I said, you know what, I've had five epic days in a whole year. You know, I'm like, that's just shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now, obviously, you know, like now we have like heaps of good days and we, we're just lucky. We've got to meet amazing people and do really cool things. Oh, that's so lovely. Was that yeah, magpies yeah. in the background, by the way, just then? Uh-huh. Could you hear it? Yeah. It's a little baby and it comes to be fed. It's not crazy friendly. I can't hand feed it or can't, like, it doesn't sit on my lap or anything. You have a new magpie friend? Yeah, but it's not the same. Oh. It, it, well, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl yet, but, yeah, they're always outside. <gasps> we're so cute. We haven't really given her a name. We just, well, there's, like, there's two of them. We call her like, little twins. We go, hey, babies. <laughs> so my aunties who live around the corner from us, my mum's sister, they have somehow adopted baby magpies as well similar and they I gave them your book like ages and ages ago and they've raised them like with sources of milk and now they like hand feed them every day as well and they're in Europe at the moment so they were like can you please feed our magpies I'm like they're not your magpies but they're like they'll wait every day like they expect their food so you better go over there so I'm feeding these magpies hilarious (laughs) I know literally (laughs) Oh, Sam. Well, this has just been so lovely. You are such an absolute legend and I so appreciate your time. I love quotes and not everyone does, but is there a... Yeah. Okay. Is it a quote from me or a quote that I like? Anybody. Or it could even just be like a thought on happiness or joy or just something that you want to leave the listeners with. I always do say like, don't put your dreams on hold because you don't know what, what tomorrow will bring. And that is the one thing I am thankful for. 
like up until the accident, like I said, if I wanted to do something, then I would do it. Imagine how devastated I'd be if I wanted to go to Africa, but I never did. You know, like look at that. I'm like, so yeah, don't put your dreams on hold. Just go for it. Oh, that's such a beautiful way to end. I often think that there's always a reason to delay doing what you want to do. There's always something that you could allow to be a reason, but yeah, you, you don't necessarily always have the time that you think. And I think that's a really, really lovely takeaway. Yeah. So if you want to do it, then do it. So you're going to Bhutan. Yeah. <laughs> we're in that like interesting stage of life right now where we're just starting to think about having a family and I'm like I've got to squeeze in so much before yeah, no, it's quick. <laughs> I went to Antarctica in December I was like what else do I need to get out of my system oh, fantastic lots of penguins not magpies but penguins really? yeah right proper penguins yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how cool. Sam where can we find you where can we find your book if anyone is interested in having you speak like where can we find you there is a website, Sambloom. Just Google Sambloom. Amazing. I'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you so Thank you. much. This was delightful. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so fun. <laughs> it's so cool. It's so cool talking about the past. What an incredible human being who still seems quite bewildered that anyone is interested in her story, which is so endearing. I loved speaking to Sam so much and I hope you guys found her as refreshing and inspiring as I did. If you don't already have a copy of her book, I'll pop links in the show notes along with her social pages, website, the movie and the like. She actually has a couple of books, as we mentioned. If you enjoyed, please do take a moment to share the episode or leave a review to keep growing our beautiful neighborhood as far and wide as possible. I'll be back next week with Ange to chat about the past few weeks. So if you do have any questions or things you'd like covered, please shoot us a DM before then. And in the meantime, I hope you're all seizing your yay.